Join me for our New Testament reading from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Happy New Year. It's going to take a while to get used to saying 2023, but I'm sure we'll get there. Join me as we pray. Father, we thank you for your promise to be with your people. Thank you that you are God, Emmanuel. As we were reminded in the Advent season, you're God who breaks into our world. And we know that every week, you come into our presence, into our hearts, with grace and truth to remind us of the hope that we have in Christ. And so, Lord, as we look ahead to this new year, We pray for proper and biblical confidence. Not that our lives will be better than last year or in the years past, but that your kingdom will advance and that our labor in the Lord would not be in vain. And so, Lord, strengthen our hands. And, Lord, resolve our hearts to live for you in this coming year, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Has this ever happened to you? When you are drawn so into a story or a movie or a sports game that even though you know how it ends, you, for a moment, forget how it ends. This happens quite often now that I am staring down 50, and I think there's some correlation there, but I forget when I'm watching my beloved fighting Illini play and string together a series of good plays, I think maybe we will win. But I know how it ends because I saw the score before watching the replays on YouTube. And I tell myself, oh yeah, we don't win. Or perhaps you were drawn in by a book or a movie, and in that moment, as conflict escalates, you thought, oh my goodness, is this the end? And you pause And you remind yourself, wait, wait, I know how this ends. And I know that he will win. A mental lapse, a temporary amnesia is real, and Christians suffer from it too. And here's what I mean. We get so caught up in our current cultural moment and all the political chatter around us that we forget how our story ends. 
whether it's the headlines that dominate the news or the latest research on post-COVID church statistics, it's easy to think that somehow church is on life support, that we're barely hanging on. And if it weren't for my faithful attendance and hard work, boy, where would this church be? Perhaps for some of you, it's not what's out there, but it's closer to home that's causing this momentary amnesia. Maybe it's an ongoing strained relationship with a family member, a heavy burden you carry alone, an ongoing struggle, or a lingering doubt with Christian faith. These things not only drag us down, but they blind us to the truth. And before long, we don't have a savior. We become our own functional savior. The good news for those who are in Christ is this, that our present circumstance, no matter how bleak, does not determine the outcome. Jesus has won. Sin has been paid in full, and the grave is now empty. And because of what Christ has done, glory awaits us. But in the meantime... We live in between the two advents, the already and the not yet, as theologians say, where life and death, joy and suffering coexist. And Apostle Paul summarized our spiritual journey in this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And the same apostle will go on to say in the book of Romans that we are, because of what Christ has done, more than conquerors in Christ. This is the good news. But as I said already, so often we forget this good news because of the thing that is before us. The very thing that blinds us to the truth, to our Savior, to Christ. And as we look at Matthew chapter 16, I want to bring us back to this simple yet profound truth that we are not our own functional saviors. We have one who has been to hell and back, who is now seated, who is now sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he who came will come again. And upon his return, he will make all things new. And in the meantime, he is in the details of our lives, bringing about glory, changing us to become more and more like Christ in his moral character. So let's look at this passage together and look at two things that guarantee Christ, our Savior, our victor, and the promise and the hope that he offers to us. First is Jesus' identity. Verse 13 begins with the words, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Jesus did everything intentionally. And there's a reason why he waited for this very moment to raise this question. And there are two reasons for this. First is the growing false rumors about him. Jesus referred to this earlier in chapter 16 as the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
Just as a little leaven can affect the entire dough, Jesus knows that a seed of doubt can ruin our faith. And so he pauses before the the lies can be planted in the hearts of his followers to correct some things and to clarify other things. You see, our enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy, and one of his primary weapons is a lie. And it only took a lie. Did God really say to change the course of mankind and ruin the very thing God created? You see, spiritual battle, more often than not, is the battle of faith, and it takes place right here and right here. Will we believe? Will we hold on? Will we be faithful? Second reason Jesus raised this question is the context. Across Caesarea Philippi in the region of Mount Hermon, 25 miles north of Sea of Galilee, there is an enormous rock on the side of a mountain like a solid wall stretching straight up to the heavens, scholars say. At its base is a cave which used to be the source of water for the Jordan River. At the entrance of this said cave, Herod, Philip, built a temple to Caesar and to the god Pan, and to stack the deck, if, he will, if you will, uh, he ordered the many carvings of statues of different gods. And over time, this place became known as the Gates of Hell. With the Gates of Hell in the background, Jesus pauses because he has an important lesson that he wants to teach his disciples. And he asks, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They answer, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Some thought Jesus might be John the Baptist back from the dead, or Elijah come to prepare the way for the Messiah. Or in the Gospel of Matthew, Jeremiah because of the persecution that the disciples witnessed from the religious leaders. Jesus is in good company. After all, he's counted among the prophets But he's not going to settle. And so he turns to his followers and asks again, but who do you say I am? Jesus himself will answer that question in the very next chapter in Matthew 17 in the transfiguration where Peter, James, and John will witness Jesus' true identity. But for now, Jesus asks this question Whenever Jesus asks us a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer, but he gives us time to develop our faith. And Peter speaks up on behalf of the group and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is a rich statement, so let's pause to unpack this a little bit. The title Christ means the promised Messiah, the anointed one, as many of you know. In the Old Testament, three classes or offices of people were anointed, prophets, priests, and kings. And God's people believed that this Messiah would be the anointed one like none other, that he would be a prophet like no other, that he would be a priest like no other, and that he would be a king like they've never seen before. And we see this to be the case in the life and the ministry of Jesus in the New Testament, in the gospel accounts. He is the prophet who not only speaks on behalf of God, but he is the word incarnate. 
He is the great high priest who not offers more animal sacrifices, but he offers himself once and for all for the forgiveness of our sins. And he is the king who reigns on the throne of David forever and ever. The Hebrew scriptures, known as the Tanakh, ends with the Chronicles, not Malachi like our Old Testament does. Do you know the reason why? There is a discrepancy when you compare the Samuels and the Kings with the Chronicles. It seems as if the author of the Chronicles could care less about some of the details that took place hundreds of years ago because the Chronicles were written after the return from the exile. And as the author is going through a long list of kings that came, both to Israel and Judah, he is asking the question, where is this king that was promised to us? We know of God's good creation. We see it and read about it in Genesis 1 and 2. And we know the destruction that happened in Genesis chapter 3. And we know that the son of Abraham, the son of David, this promised king will one day return to bring true shalom. Where is this king? And in the silence, the New Testament opens with Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Here is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Behold your king. The king has come, the promised one, the one who will undo the curse of sin and bring true peace and shalom, bring kingdom, heaven on earth as God promised. The second title, the son of the living God, doubles down on Jesus' kingship as David's heir. And we know this to be true. As you read through the Samuels, you get to David and the promise that God will establish his throne forever and ever. That he will one day have a son who will reign for, for all eternity. And when you get to Solomon, you think, perhaps this is the one. And there are a lot of clues Things that point to Solomon possibly being that son of David, the eternal king. But before long, we know that Solomon fails. After him, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, and so on and so forth. And you wonder, where is this king? And Jesus, he is born a king. God himself. And he takes the throne, not by force, but through a sacrifice, giving of himself. He's the only king who wrapped a towel, a servant's towel around his waist to wash our feet. And the very hands that got dirty washing our feet were stretched on the cross to demonstrate the Father's love for us. Behold our king. Peter got this because, not because he was more astute or he took seminary classes, but verse 17 says, it was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. Friends, all our knowledge and understanding of God are gifts from him. And what we do know of Christ and what we do know of the gospel should always lead us to humility and worship. The question, who do you say I am, makes all the difference both in this age and in the age to come. 
The Apostle Peter says in the book of Acts chapter 2, verse 12, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you're new to Christian faith or if you're on the fence about following Christ, can I ask you, friend, do you know this Jesus? Not a taskmaster who adds to your burden, but who comes alongside of you and invites you to rest, gives you his life for death, his righteousness for your sin, true life. This is our king, our savior, and your faith in him will make all the difference both in this life and in the age to come. There is a missional application for us here as a church. If it is true that our response to the question, who do you say I am, makes all the difference, then we have to work hard as the body of Christ to demonstrate what is good, true, and beautiful about Christ. We have to help the world see who Jesus really is. Because sometimes the answer is not a set of propositions, but it's an experience. That's why God invites us, taste and see, taste and see, experience me, and you will know that I am good. And I pray that we as God's people, the church, would take seriously this call to be an earthly embodiment of the things promised us so that when the world comes through those doors and worships with us, that they would see a glimpse of Christ right here, lived out in our worship. And just as importantly, in our work, in our relationships, in our play, that they would see Christ in us. Amen? Amen. The question, who do you say I am, also functions at a micro level. What do I mean? Well, how you answer that question, Christian, makes all the difference in how you love your spouse, in how you love your roommate, in how patient you are with your kids, in how patient you are with your coworkers. If Jesus really is the Son of God, the Messiah, then it changes everything. I think this is lost on us, perhaps a little bit, in today's version of Christianity where we're simply called to accept the gospel. But what does it mean to really accept the gospel if not faith and faithfulness? Because believing is becoming. Or as theologians would say, justification, our standing before God, changes or it compels sanctification are becoming like Christ in his moral character. Justification and sanctification, they go hand in hand. You cannot simply accept justification, your new status as a child of God, perfectly righteous before the Father, without doing the hard work of living that out in your everyday life. It is the grace of God that saves us, and it is the grace of God that sanctifies us. And it is the grace of God that will one day glorify us. And I pray that we as God's people, as we think about what it means to follow Christ, in this new year, as some of you are 
prone to make New Year resolutions, perhaps you'll sit with this question. Who is Christ to you? Who is Christ to you? And how does that affect your way of life, your thought, your way of life? And that you will come to a place of obedience and surrender to our Lord. Thankfully, though, we are not alone in this effort. Christ is with us. And that's really the message of Advent, isn't it? He comes to us. And he does not simply come to us as a babe, accomplishes his work, and then basically says, well, good luck, you're on your own now. No, he is always with us. And he has bound himself, committed himself to this very work in us. So that as we think about living out faith in our lives, growing to become like Christ, he's with us every step of the way. And he who calls us is faithful, he will do it. So we can be confident that in this coming year, yeah, our lives might not be better off, but the church will prevail. Our mission, not in vain, because of his identity. Christ, the Messiah. Second thing that we see here is his mission, Jesus' mission. After Jesus establishes his identity, he begins to spell out his mission starting with verse 18. The meaning of verse 18 has been debated because Jesus' promise to build his church relies on a play on words, if you will. The name Peter in Greek is Petros, which is a masculine form of the word rock. But the phrase on this rock in Greek is Petra, which is a feminine form of the word rock. So which is it? Will Jesus build his church on Peter the apostle, or will Jesus build his church on Peter's confession of faith? Many in the reform circles have argued for option number two. No bias there. Okay. Because, let's be honest, how can it be Peter, right? The guy is not very stellar, not even among the 12. Peter, as someone once said, is ready, fire, aim guy. You know, you're supposed to ready, aim, fire. He is ready, fire, aim, and gets himself in all kinds of trouble. So which is it? Now, if you ask me, my answer is yes. Jesus will build his church, period. He is able to do far more than we can ask or imagine. Why? Because Jesus is the cornerstone. We've been singing about it the whole night. He is the firm foundation, the rock, the mighty fortress. And if the church is built upon him, then we will be secure. Jesus is the cornerstone, the rock of our salvation, the head of the church, and he has committed himself to not only be the foundation, but to finish what he has started. This church is not Glenn's church, and he'll be the first one to tell you. It's not my church. It's not Pastor Andrew's church. It's not the elder's church. 
We didn't get here because of our hard work and strategy. We're here because of the grace of God and Christ who is at the head. He is the one who leads us. He's the one who is carefully building this church and he will always be the firm foundation until all his purposes are accomplished through this church. Do you believe that? I do. I believe that. He will fulfill his promise. And one day we will see it, but in the meantime, we're called to faith and faithfulness. And it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to just keep on working because you want to see some results. I really enjoy cutting the grass. That's not me volunteering, so please um, don't text me this summer. I got work for you. Uh, but I really enjoy cutting the grass. Why? Because after a while, you can look back and, like, you can see the fruit of your labor. It's like, wow, look. It was a mess, and now it's beautiful. There's nothing like the smell of a freshly cut grass. No? I'm getting some strange looks here. Um, you know, okay. You know, that illustration would have worked in the burbs. I mean, that would have been a slam dunk. But I'm getting a lot of like, what are you talking about? Well, I still like cutting the grass. Because you can see, like I said, the fruit of your labor. But sometimes in ministry, you don't really see a whole lot of fruit, do you? There is certainly a beginning, but there seems to be no end. You just keep on plowing. And I think there's a lot of wisdom to Jesus' words. Don't look back. You might not see much. Keep your hands to the plow and look straight ahead. Because one day, you'll be able to see the fruit. And you'll see the fingerprints of God all over the place. And you'll wonder, how did I miss that? Wow. And I pray that in this year, you and I, as we remind ourselves of the mission of Christ, will faithfully labor, and give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because when we do, Jesus says, even the very gates of hell would not be able to withstand it. Now, you've seen movies like Lord of the Rings, and some of you that are older, like me, Gladiator, right? Now, you don't see gates out in the open battlefield, right? Where do you see the gates? It's a last line of defense. You got to win many battles before you get to the enemy's gates. And there, Jesus says, even there, hell would not be able to withstand the church from advancing. I love how the Acts, the book of Acts that we're studying and we're going to pick up again starting next Sunday ends. It ends with this Greek phrase, the church was forcefully advancing. The Bible is a thick book. And Luke adds the word forcefully to emphasize the truth that you and I don't always see. The church is not just winning battles here and there winning converts 
each service. No, the church is forcefully advancing, breaking down the gates of hell, as some theologians refer to as our hearts that are resistant to the gospel. It is winning us over in the most beautiful ways as we are swept away by love and grace of our Savior who comes to give himself completely and utterly for us. And it turns enemies into worshipers, into friends who bow the knee to say, here I am, send me. So that we then take the same message to other enemies, those that are resistant to the gospel. We love them and serve them and win them over for Jesus. This is our hope, brothers and sisters, as we think about the work that we have been called to. Nothing can stand in the way of Christ from accomplishing his purpose, not even hell itself. As some of you know, I have been a part of this mission organization for some time now, and uh, this past October, I was able to go to Ireland for several days to meet in person many of our mission associates from different parts of the world. And in one of the sessions, we had a pastor from Ukraine share about the work that is being done in his church. The church is in southwest part of Ukraine, away from conflict, but they have seen many, many come through the doors of their church. And in the name of Christ, they're able to provide food, shelter, clothes, community, warmth, fellowship. These things, that mean so much to folks whose lives have been destroyed because of this conflict. And as he began to share about what's really going on in that country and beyond, couldn't believe what I was hearing. Our worst fears were confirmed. The things we're hearing on the news don't do justice to what's really going on out there. Yet in the midst of death and destruction, the pastor confidently said, oh, but God is at work. God is at work. So many people fled the country to Poland, which happens to be the least Christianized country in that part of the world. And many that fled Ukraine to enter Poland are Christians. And almost overnight, the Christian population in Poland doubled. And what do you think these Christians are doing in Poland? You would think people who just left everything, whose lives were utterly decimated by a needless conflict would complain and grumble about all the evil that's going on in the world. No, actually they are sharing the good news and the eternal hope that we have in a Savior. And people are testifying to the goodness of God. And many are hearing about Jesus for the first time. Friends, God is at work. Jesus is building his church through people like Peter, like me, and like you. And you might think, oh, but my track record is not that great. And Jesus says that's more than enough. As we say regularly, he's able to draw a straight line with crooked sticks. And all it takes 
It's humble, willing, children of God for Christ to build his church, to advance his kingdom, to bring true shalom in this city and beyond. And so as we think about this new year, how we might invest the precious resource called time, I want to encourage all of you to think about how you might be a part of this work that God is doing. We're part of this unfolding story. It's our turn now here. The baton has been given to us. So let's run with all of our hearts passionately for his kingdom. Let's pray together. God, we thank you. Thank you that you are always at work. And even now, tonight, in this worship service, we believe you are at work. You come to us with grace and truth to revive and restore our faith and our affections for you. And we trust, God, that you are not quite done with that work, not with us, not with this church, not with the city. And we pray that you would help us, your people, the body of Christ, to take on the mantle to say, here I am, to be used as instruments for your kingdom purpose. And Lord, we pray that you would establish the work of our hands. Yes, Lord, establish the work of our hands because we want to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord because we know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. So use us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen.